You're listening to audio from the Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about the village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. Hey everybody, this is Scott O'Donohoe. I'm one of the pastors of The Village that gathers in downtown Hamilton, Ohio. Uh, this is part eight of a series of episodes called Not Our Own, where we are recapping some of the content from our classes that we held in May of 2021, where we were hoping to cultivate clarity, compassion, and an evangelistic community through conversations about gender and sexuality. If you've not listened to the first seven episodes, please go back and do that. Uh, They build the foundation for what we're talking about today uh, around sexual orientation. Uh, Just to kind of recap where we concluded our survey uh, over the last few episodes of what the scriptures have to say about same-sex sexuality, Uh, the conclusion we kind of came to is this, that we do not see uh, any instance of anything other than holy heterosexual monogamous relationships and the sexual behavior in that kind of a marriage called good or blessed. Um, So we don't see anything outside of that affirmed, uh, including same-sex sexual uh, behavior and attraction that leads to that behavior. Um, The explicit shift, the explicit loosening that we see when it comes to uh, regulations and laws about food um, or even when it comes to Gentiles following the law uh, in order to become part of God's family. We don't see any of that explicit loosening or shift anywhere mentioned in the scriptures, which is what we would expect to see uh, if that were the case for us today. Um, and every place that they are discussed, same-sex sexual behavior and same-sex attraction that leads to same-sex sexual behavior, those things are prohibited. So that's kind of where where we laid in. That was our conclusion uh, throughout our survey of the scriptures over the last few episodes. Um, however, the scriptures have not spoken to one thing in particular, what we today would call sexual orientation. Uh, and that's because sexual orientation was not a category for the ancient Israelites or for the early church. Um, So it's kind of silent on this issue. Uh, It doesn't speak to orientation because that was not a cultural category for them at that time, which means that we have to be careful um, because it's really easy uh, for us to fill in blanks, uh, to come to the scriptures with cultural categories and say, oh, well, surely the, the Bible would say this about a certain thing that It never intended to speak about. It didn't even know it existed. The authors had no uh, awareness of it in their time and day. And so we got to be careful um, as we seek to answer the question, what does the Bible say about sexual orientation? Uh, Before we talk about that, I just want to clarify the cultural categories that we do have for today. Um, So we do talk about sexual orientation. Um, We talk about sexual attraction and we talk about sexual behavior. So those are our three main categories we're going to look at today, um, or at least I want us to understand before we dig into orientation in particular. So uh, sexual orientation simply means that if you're going to be attracted to someone, uh, then they're going to be uh, of this particular sex. Uh, It doesn't mean that you're attracted to everyone or anyone of that particular sex. Uh, that's not true of folks who are heterosexual, um, and it's certainly not true of folks that are homosexual. If you're straight, um, and, and yet you are constantly attracted to everyone of the opposite sex, that's not normal, uh, and that's not healthy. Uh, and so, I mean, straight folks aren't constantly attracted to everyone 
of the opposite sex, and neither uh, uh, is is anyone of any other sexual orientation. That's not that's not how that works. Uh, and and yet sometimes, actually, oftentimes, folks um, who maybe don't know folks who are uh, who have a, a same sex sexual orientation, or just who are unfamiliar with this, even this uh, conversation at large, um, they tend to assume that if you're oriented something differently than uh, simply a, a heterosexual orientation, then you're like automatically attracted to anybody of whatever that orientation is, as if you are overly sexualized and, and that's the only filter through which you see people through. Um, and that's just not true. All right, so orientation uh, simply means like who you're prone to be uh, attracted to, but it doesn't mean you're actually attracted to anyone of that particular sex in the moment. Sexual attraction, however, is actually experiencing that uh, romantic draw or sexual draw towards someone in particular. Uh, in other words, you're interested in someone uh, as, as being a partner beyond mere friendship or companionship or co-laboring with them in some way. Uh, now, attraction uh, is something that you might just happen upon, right? Uh, it's not something that you necessarily will into existence. Uh, you might find yourself attracted to somebody, and that's not something that you went out of your way uh, to, to conjure up. Um, and yet at the same time, we can also fuel our attractions and our desires. We can even, in fact, uh, let them lead us. We can follow those attractions to, to behavior. Um, so when it comes to sexual attraction, there is uh, both like an involuntary origin to some of that, uh, and there can also be voluntary entertaining of attraction. We can entertain that stuff and stoke our attractions and desires. We can scroll Instagram. We can uh, let our imagination play out in lots of ways. There are all kinds of ways that we can stoke our attractions. Um, but there are involuntary and voluntary components of attraction to be sure. Um, but when we let our uh, attractions kind of lead us, and at that point, that's when uh, that's when we engage in sexual behavior. Um, that's simply acting, uh, maybe with or without someone's consent, on the attraction that we experience uh, towards someone else. We actively are pursuing uh, that attraction uh, in some way, and so uh, this is wholly voluntary. Behavior is wholly voluntary, 100%. Um, man, with the exception of. Uh, being on the, on the receiving end of sexual abuse or rape, obviously. Um, so behavior is is the actual doing of the sexual uh, of the sexual behavior. To to use the word <laughs> in the definition itself, um, it's the actual doing uh, of the act. So uh, orientation, attraction, behavior. Those are the three categories that we have. And what we've seen as we've walked through both the Old Testament and the New Testament is that the Bible has spoken explicitly to attraction like we saw in Romans 1, um, and behavior, like we saw in all of the other passages. Um, so here's what we know about orientation, all right? I want to look at scripture. Uh, I want to look at just empirical data uh, as a whole. And I also want to talk about uh, personal testimony and, and experiences uh, in some way. So um, as it relates to scripture, um, like we talked about when we looked at Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, um, the, the male female arrangement of marriage, uh, the idea of becoming one flesh, men and women in sex through sexual attraction that leads to that behavior, um, that is an order that humanity received from the Lord. Humanity did not arrange itself heterosexually. It did not give itself desires for the opposite sex, uh, did not create bodies or arrange ourselves in such a way where that's how we were going to procreate or become one flesh or any of those things at all. This order 
uh, was passively received from the Lord in creation. Now, we also know because of Genesis 3 that this order that we receive is now disordered uh, through the the fall of, of Genesis 3, both internally and externally, right? We are internally prone to reject God's created order. We are prone to rebel against him, to sin uh, against him, and uh, we also receive disorder. We suffer uh, both within our our bodies, uh, emotionally, mentally, but also in the world. The experiences that we're in, the environments that we're in, the relationships that we're in, we all both experience sin and suffering. Uh, Like we looked at in Genesis 3, we looked at how work is hard and marriage is now hard and childbearing is now painful and death is a thing. These again are, this is the disorder that we receive. It's not necessarily order rejected, but we receive difficult uh, contexts in which to try to flourish and live and be faithful. In this disorder, uh, it goes down all the way even to the, the, the genetic level. Um, for sure, it, the, the fall affects every layer of creation. Every, every level of reality is affected by this disorder uh, that now exists between us and the Lord, us uh, and, and creation, even uh, between ourselves uh, as a people. And so w- what I want us to understand is that, uh, for example, if a gay gene, quote unquote, I use that uh, that term with air quotes, as I'm saying, if, if a gay gene, uh, some kind of genetic switch is discovered that uh, is the decisive determining factor in someone's orientation, um, to be clear, that has not been discovered. But if it is discovered, this should not rattle our theology by any stretch of the imagination. If, if, we, are, um, if we are distinctly Christian, biblically rooted in the way that we understand the fallenness of the world, um, then, then this should not be surprising to us if this kind of a genetic marker would be discovered because we understand that brokenness and disorder and the fall affects every layer of reality, all right? Uh, so, so from the scriptures, we know that we receive disorder um, in the world, even in us, and our affections and our ambitions, our mental health, our emotional health, our physical bodies, even down to our genetics because of the fall. All right. So, so biblically, this is kind of what the scriptures might speak to in, ter- in terms of orientation. It's received, but also uh, it's not just received in the order in which it was created. It's received now through this uh, disordering um, experience or filter of, of the fall. All right. So the second thing to look at is just empirical data. Um, so if you look at uh, a meta-analysis. Uh, there, there have been a few done, many done, but a few major meta-analysis done um, on kind of the origins of sexuality. Like where, where does homosexuality in particular, that orientation, where does it come from? Is it nature? Is it nurture? Um, there have been twin studies and all sorts of other things done. And so uh, if you look at meta-analyses, which take um, a whole bunch of studies and look at them together, um, what in the world is going on here? What, what's the origin uh, of sexuality? Those meta-analyses, they are inconclusive in terms of there being just simply one determining decisive factor. Um, at this point in time, what we know is that both nature and nurture from this data uh, has a statistically significant influence on the development of homosexuality. 
Um, so this stuff is from the APA, the American Psychological Association, who has no interest in not simply saying, you know what, like we're folks are born this way and therefore it's okay, right? That they have no interest in not saying that. But but all of the data that we have at this point um, suggests that both environmental factors and seemingly internal factors that are resilient to the environment have a part to play in the development of sexual orientation. So the research is conclusively inconclusive on there being a single decisive factor. However, it does show that both nature and nurture play a statistically significant role in that development. So that's the data side of things. And then lastly, if we just consider um, personal testimonies, the stories of those in the LGBTQ community, um, most people who experience same-sex attraction, I'm not talking about you know, younger folks who experiment or whatever, that's a thing. Um, but I'm talking about folks who, who report same-sex attraction, and that's a long-term thing for them. Um, it's not just something they, they tried out at some point in terms of behavior or whatever in college or in school or whatever, but, but those who experience same-sex attraction um, report that, that it isn't and it wasn't a choice for them. Uh, most of them report that it's been this static thing for them since puberty. They experienced something different from their peers when they went through puberty. They were noticing different people than what the, the, the people in their friend group of the same sex, they just noticed different people than them. Um, and so the, the reality is I'm not sure what reason we have not to believe them uh, when they say that. This is, this is the case for straight folks, right? We simply experience this. Uh, again, it's a, a part of that received order in some way, shape, or form. Um, we don't choose uh, this particular orientation for those of us who are heterosexual. We don't choose that orientation. Our biblical theology would allow for this to be the case. That it's not necessarily a choice. Um, it's something that is simply experienced. It's received. Um, and the, the empirical data, like we talked about, uh, seems to suggest that while, yes, there is seemingly a, an environmental influence, there is also a statistically significant influence from nature. Uh, and if we just look at the experience of the LGBTQ community historically, um, even today, and especially in the church, it's not like identifying as LGBTQ has gained folks much of anything, right? In fact, especially in the church, it makes things all the more difficult. And so for folks to, to claim this, to say it's a choice, to claim this, to move into it, it, it doesn't seem to make sense that, that they would be lying that it's a choice. <laughs> Uh, in, in order to make things more difficult for them uh, in the life of the church with the people that they probably want to be uh, belonging with, they want to experience community with, uh, the people they want to follow Jesus with. So all that being said, uh, looking at the scriptures, looking at the data, looking at personal testimonies of folks, my conclusion for all of this is to say that, that same-sex sexual orientation is not order actively rejected, but it's disorder passively received. So same-sex sexual orientation uh, is not us actively rejecting order or anybody actively rejecting order, but, but this orientation, same-sex sexual orientation is simply passively received, disordering of the way God originally intended us to be oriented in creation in Genesis 1 and 2. So to be clear, fueling our, our same-sex sexual attraction or any attraction 
to, to someone that's not our spouse or, or to, to let our imaginations run wild, to lust after anybody, all of that stuff is sin. We fuel our attraction, our imaginations, our desires for things that are outside of God's design, be that uh, same-sex oriented or something else, that is sin. Engaging in same-sex sexual behavior or any sexual behavior outside of marriage, that is sin. But simply being prone to same-sex uh, sexual attraction, that, that is not sin. To be oriented in that way, for that to be the category of people that you might be attracted to, that is in and of itself not sin. Agency, volition, will, choice, these things have a pretty decisive factor in determining what is sinful and what is not. What I'm responsible for, what I'm guilty of, and what I'm not. An orientation does not determine our sin. It, it might describe what our temptations might be, right? I'm not going to be tempted sexually by people of the same sex because I personally uh, am oriented towards people of different sex, right? So my temptation is going to be different in terms of fighting to order my sexuality in a particular way. But the same isn't true for someone who is same-sex oriented. And like we read in 1 Corinthians 6, the very first time that we did this podcast and the very first class that we had, um, we saw that we all have these natural urges. We all have desires. We all have instincts uh, for sexual immorality in general, again, this is not uh, pointed towards same-sex sexuality or uh, anything. Just in general, all of us have uh, an inclination, urges, instincts for sexual immorality, and yet we don't have to be ruled by those things. That's one of the, the, the good news bits from 1 Corinthians 6. We do not have to be ruled by those things. There's a, a distinction between our natural desires, even those disordered, in relation to the Lord. And, and what we have to do, what we choose to do, they are categorically different things. It's the difference between temptation and sin. And so just as sec heterosexual believers have to fight to order their sexual attractions and their sexual behaviors according to God's design, according to that archetype, man, despite the fact that they are heterosexual, as if that makes things better, easier, like so does everyone else who wants to follow Jesus. Everyone has to fight to do that, right? And just as a heterosexual orientation doesn't lock straight folks into perpetual attraction that always leads to sexual behavior with people of the opposite sex, right? That would be a mess. Like the same is also true of those with the same sex orientation. We have to be consistent in the way that we think about this stuff and the way that we apply these terms, think about these categories, all of that, all right? So to be clear, when we engage in any sexual behavior that's not with our spouse in the covenant of marriage between a husband and a wife, this is order actively rejected. All right, we're choosing rebellion. We are sinning. When we fuel our lusts and the passions of our heart in a way that leads us to desire or want to actively reject that order, that is order actively rejected. We're working against it. We are sinning. But when we find ourselves prone to notice one sex over the other, that is passively received, either, either ordered around the male-to-female archetype of Genesis 1 and 2 or disordered now because of the fall that we see in Genesis 3. All right? So, so like everyone, there's a cost of discipleship. But unlike everyone, the costs can be unique. They're, they're different from person to person based on our temptations, our struggles, our sufferings, our sins, all of that. And so 
looking at the LGBTQ community, man, celibacy, the, the internal conflict that others just will never be aware of on a regular basis, the, the social and the cultural pressures that exist that they experience that, that many of us don't, being among other people, families, marriages, people who are able to partake in things that you, you might not get to or can't in the moment, all of that stuff, that there's a cost to that. There's a weight to, to discipleship that might be heavier for folks in that community. And, and all of us should know this. All of us should be aware of it and not treat it lightly. To be like super clear, I have been more encouraged lately by stories of folks in the LGBTQ plus community who are just willing to radically follow Jesus in ways that uh, cost that like I would never imagine, never think of, don't even have to consider. But there are folks who are, who are willing to do whatever to radically follow Jesus. And it's just so encouraging and it's edifying and it's convicting for me as well. And, and it just encourages me and affirms for me that Jesus is worth the cost. So, man, I, I want us to remember again our first week together. The first podcasting you may have listened to um, around this stuff, or if you join us in person for the class, the first class, that again, like our urges and our instincts, they don't have to own us at all. In fact, our orientation, our attractions, our behaviors, they don't define us either. Christ defines us. And so we looked at how God doesn't even just leave us there, but he goes with us into the hard places. That's what we saw in Genesis 3. And one of those places for us is our sexuality. For all of us, gay, straight, whatever you might be, he goes with us into our sexuality to help sanctify us either out of sin or to sanctify us in wherever we are to help us be faithful and to worship him in or through what is difficult for us. And so, man, I believe that it's, it's biblically, empirically, experientially consistent to say that it's possible to live faithfully with Jesus and the church, to, to lead in the church, to make disciples in the church with a non-heterosexual orientation, which might be shocking for some people or not shocking for some people to hear. But, but this is where I think consistency, where an honest treatment of the scriptures, where looking at just the data that we have in front of us and and listening to the people that are in the room with us who are telling their stories, who are trying to help us listen and faithfully follow Jesus, this is where that, that leads me. Um, and, and I have approached this stuff, hopefully, in the way I've, I've come at this. Is, uh, it might be tough for you to hear this as I'm, uh, it's a one-sided conversation and I'm saying lots of information. I'm approaching this humbly as a learner and as a disciple and as someone who wants to be humble and under the word and listen and, and follow the text, go where the text leads uh, and be faithful to the scriptures. Not saying more than what's there, but also not cutting stuff out of what's there uh, to make me feel more comfortable. So that's where this lands me. Last time, uh, we took a look at what Jesus uh, may have said about sexuality. We, we went to Mark 10 uh, to look at some of that stuff. Well, in that very same chapter, uh, we see the story of the rich young ruler uh, who comes to Jesus, wants to follow him. Jesus is like, hey, uh, only one thing you got to do. Just give up everything you have, sell it, uh, give it to the poor. And, and the rich young ruler kind of walks away with his head hung low. Uh, and so Jesus turns to his disciples later in that. And uh, this uh, verses 29 through 31 in Mark 10, Jesus says this, Truly, 
I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So look, there's a a cost of discipleship. And while we can say Jesus should be enough and Jesus is enough, he is worth it all the way, the church should make this cost even easier to bear for anybody, but but in this conversation for our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. Do, do they believe, do our gay and lesbian folk, do, do they believe that uh, they could pay this cost to follow Jesus and, and that, that if they leave behind their current life or leave behind the future possibilities of what might be before them, that the world would freely offer them, that, that the world would say they could have would they believe that they will receive a hundredfold now in this time, homes to be welcomed into, brothers and sisters uh, in Christ to be uh, walking this through with moms and dads spiritually to help guide them and, and even the possibility of being invited into to, to shepherding and making disciples and leaving a spiritual legacy? Do they believe that they would actually get that in the church? Do they believe they would be equipped and encouraged to make disciples, uh, to leave that legacy, to be asked to lead. Yes, persecutions and tough stuff are going to exist, right? It's going to be a part of, of what they go through in this life, just like all of us. But there will be people to go through all of that stuff with in their unique struggles, in their unique challenges. And those people will remind them that eternal life is to be gained, that Jesus is enough, that he is worth it, right? Can, can that kind of encouragement be tasted in the life of the church? Would they believe that they could leave this behind and come to the church and receive all that stuff a hundredfold, right? Do we make the cost easier to pay to follow Jesus? So that's kind of where I want to leave this conversation. Um, we will take a look at, uh, at gender um, here in the future and, and probably maybe even do some Q&A stuff uh, as well. Uh, take some questions that I've received uh, that you guys have sent in, uh, people in the class have asked to help kind of tease out some of the practical, maybe implications, some other questions you might have around sexuality and around gender for sure um, as well. But uh, I'm going to leave that where it is today. Uh, hopefully that was helpful um, and we will see you next time.